0: This New America NYC event was recorded on June 4th, 2015, and is titled Achieving a Just Peace in Israel-Palestine, and is a debate between Peter Beinart, senior columnist for Haaretz and associate professor of journalism and political science at CUNY schools and senior fellow at New America, and Yosef Manayer, executive director of the US campaign to end Israeli occupation, and is moderated by Siegel Samuel, Deputy Editor of the Jewish Daily Forward and author of The Mystics of Mile End.
1: Okay, hi everyone. Um, I'm so glad you're here. We, uh, we're here at a good moment to talk about how we can help achieve a just peace in Israel-Palestine. We're just about almost one year on from the war in Gaza last summer, uh, still with no clear idea of how to prevent another such war. We've got a new Israeli government that's formed after elections in March, um, and it's increasingly right wing, so uh, making it more and more difficult to figure out how we can achieve a two state solution. Meanwhile, we've got the Vatican uh, formally recognizing the state of Palestine as the Palestinians move for international recognition without waiting for Israel's green light. Um, and the sense over here in the US is generally that the, the tone of the debate, the Israel Palestine debate, is shifting um, because. People are asking, you know, if we're not going to have a two-state solution, then what? Um, And so questions about a one-state solution, about BDS, and about the fundamental fundamental nature of Zionism are really gaining traction. So we're lucky tonight to have two writers and thinkers here with us that I've had the pleasure of working with before, Peter Beinart and Yusuf Munayer, who are going to debate these questions. And just to let you know the structure of the debate, uh, Peter and Yusuf will each have 10 minutes for some opening remarks. And then they'll each deliver a five minute rebuttal. And after that, uh, we'll sort of enter into a bit of a more free flowing conversation up here. And then we'll have plenty of time for questions from the audience at the end. So think of your questions and save them for the end. We will get to them. Uh, And with that, I'll turn it over to Peter.
2: Okay. uh, Well, I'd like to thank uh, Tyler uh, uh, and Segal for making this possible, and and Youssef for doing it with me. Youssef and I you'll see have our disagreements, but he's someone who I admire, someone I've learned from, and someone whom I expect to learn from tonight. Um, and I want to start with something that I've heard Youssef say, which I think is exactly right, which is that before we can talk constructively about solutions to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we must first define the problems we're trying to solve. And I think those problems are basically two. The first is that millions of individual Palestinians lack basic rights. In the West Bank and Gaza Strip, Palestinians are not citizens of the state that controls their lives. Even inside Israel proper, Palestinian citizens suffer structural discrimination. This is the unjust, immoral, one-state reality that exists today. On this, I think Yousef and I probably agree. Where we may not is that I see a second problem, which must also be addressed to solve the first. And that is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not merely a clash of individual, deracinated human beings. It is also a clash of rival nationalism. Most Israeli Jews and most Palestinians do not only want individual rights. They also want national rights. They want a Jewish or Palestinian state. Individuals and activists may find this primitive, parochial, (laughs) antiquated. But intellectuals and activists, no matter how well-meaning, get themselves in trouble when they craft political arrangements that sound lovely in seminar rooms but don't take account of the actual identities of the people on the ground. Modern history is replete with countries with beautiful-sounding constitutions that descended into civil war. In 1937, the Peel Commission proposed partitioning Israel-Palestine after concluding that, quote, neither of the two national ideals permits of combination in the service of a single state, unquote. Almost 80 years later, that remains true. The basic concept of a Jewish and Palestinian state side by side, which was legitimized by the world in 1947, remains the only legitimate solution in the eyes of both peoples. This March, the Palestinian poster Khalil Shikaki asked Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza whether they supported, quote, a solution based on the establishment of one state in all Palestinian areas in Israel, one in which Arabs and Jews enjoy equality. In other words, he asked them whether they supported the solution increasingly advocated by left-leaning intellectuals and activists around the world. Almost 70% said no. In 2012, the Arab American pollster Jim Zogby surveyed not only Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, but also Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon, and Israeli Jews. He concluded that, quote, a two-state solution remains the only viable option that is acceptable, albeit with differences, to both sides. The one-state solution is rejected by all parties, including Palestinian refugees, unquote. Why is this the case? First, as I said, because most Israeli Jews and Palestinians remain deeply committed to their separate national identities. I'm sure we'll talk tonight about the tension between Zionism and liberalism. There is absolutely such a tension. I acknowledge it in my book. The kind of Zionism I support would would reduce that tension dramatically by stripping away many aspects of Jewish privilege inside Israel proper and, of course, it would require Israel to end its undemocratic control of the West Bank and Gaza. But it would still allow a preferential immigration policy for Jews and some Jewish public symbols. And even this thin Zionism would privilege Jews. But if there's a tension between Zionism and liberalism, there's also a tension between Palestinian nationalism and liberalism. If Zionism privileges Jews, who are both an ethnic group and a religion, then Palestinian nationalism privileges both an ethnic group, Arabs, and a religion, Islam. Article 1 of the Palestinian Constitution declares that, quote, the Palestinian people are part of the Arab nation, unquote. Article 4 says that, quote, Islam is the official religion in Palestine. The principles of Islamic sharia shall be the main source of legislation. This is from the PLO. I haven't even mentioned Hamas. I'm not saying this to demonize Palestinians. The Palestinian Constitution also contains lots of terrific language about individual rights. I'm simply arguing that when people reject two states in favor of one binational state, which is the main proposed alternative, I wonder where exactly they see the appetite for this binationalism on either side. Binational states are exceedingly hard to keep together. Binationalism barely works in Belgium. The Czechs and Slovaks couldn't make it work. Scotland is seriously considering seceding from the UK, as is Catalonia from Spain. And these are all far, far more placid environments than the land between the river and the sea. What would we call this Israeli-Palestinian binational state? In post-apartheid South Africa, the answer was obvious, because whites and blacks both considered themselves South Africans. In this Israel-Palestine, by contrast, this imagined binational state, there we, we have no name because no national identity undergirds it. Let's imagine that someone did create Israstai. What is its army going to look like? It will be an army under, operating under conditions of unbelievable stress. In Israstai, a judge will have to rule that the Moroccan Jews, who have lived on the ruins of a Palestinian village since 1951, must be evicted to make way for Palestinian refugees. Or that judge must tell those refugees that the deeds to which they have clung all these years are no longer valid. And then the joint Jewish and Palestinian brigade of the Israelstein army will have to carry out that eviction notice, or non-eviction notice, jailing or shooting members of their own side in the process because of their common allegiance to Israelstein. This is not progressivism. It's the great temptation of progressives utopianism. Is my view shaped by the fact that, as a Jew, I am attached to the idea that in a post-Holocaust world, there should be one state on earth devoted to Jewish self-protection and Jewish self-expression? Yes. I plead guilty. I'm not a pure universalist either. But I'm not trying to convince you to care about Israel in the way I do. I'm simply arguing that the two-state solution as problematic as it is, is better than any one-state alternative. And you don't have to be a Zionist to believe that. Listen to Marwan Barghouti, probably the most popular Palestinian politician alive, who told Al-Monitor in 2013 that, quote, if the the two-state solution fails, the substitute will not be a binational one-state solution, but a persistent conflict that extends based on an existential crisis one that does not know any middle ground." Unquote. Is the two-state solution hard to achieve? Absolutely. But it's easier than the alternative. We know what the rough outline of such a partition would look like. It was agreed to by Israeli and Palestinian negotiators in Geneva in 2003. Ehud and Olmer and Mahmoud Abbas were converging on something similar in 2008. And both men are on record as believing they could have reached a deal had they negotiated for a few more months. 85% of settlers live in 6% of the West Bank, much, though not all, of which can be annexed to Israel and traded for an equal amount of land inside the Green Line. In fact, Abbas reportedly agreed to let 75% of the settlers stay as part of land swaps. Will some of the rest resist? Sure. But Israel evacuated the radical settlers of Gaza in one week without a single death. And the minute a settler shoots an IDF soldier, their support will collapse, even on the mainstream Israeli right. So how do we move towards achieving the two-state solution? Not through the kind of peace process that John Kerry oversaw last year, at least not right now. It requires pressure. Some of that pressure must be on Hamas to publicly agree to respect the will of the Palestinian people, as expressed in a referendum on a final deal. Israel has the right to know that if it signs a deal with a Palestinian leader and the Palestinian people endorse it, Hamas will not stand in the way. But most of the pressure must be on Israel, which is the party that is creating the facts on the ground that make the two-state solution harder. As I have written, I am open to any pressure on Israel that is nonviolent and affirms the two-state solution. I support a resolution this fall at the United Nations that puts teeth behind the principles of a two-state deal, including a timeline and a mechanism for ensuring that both parties negotiate in good faith. I support labeling and boycotting products from Jewish settlements. I support the proposal recently offered by Professors Guidon Shafir and Michael Walser to deny visas to Israeli politicians like Naftali Bennett, who advocate holding West Bank Palestinians as permanent non-citizens. What I cannot support is pressure that does not distinguish between Israel inside and beyond the green line. Pressure that does not respect the distinction between the part of Israel where Palestinians enjoy citizenship and the right to vote, and the part where they do not. Pressure aimed with a wink and a nod at a one-state solution that I oppose. The two-state solution is not a utopia. It does not represent perfect justice. It is, in fact, for both Palestinians and Jews, in important ways, a tragedy, Like democracy, it is the worst outcome except all the others, but it at least offers both Palestinians and Jews what they most want, the dignity that comes from citizenship in a state of their own. And in the Middle East that today flows with blood, it will be an achievement in which our generation of Palestinians and Jews could take enormous pride.
1: Thank you, Peter. We're going to hear from Yusuf now.
3: Thanks, uh, Peter. Thank you, uh, Seagal and Tyler and New America for hosting this and for all of you for indulging us uh, this evening. Um, My opening comments are not going to respond to to Peter's comments just now. We'll leave that for the rebuttals later. Um, But before I begin, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about um, when we began talking about setting up this event and we talked about framing it. Uh, one of the suggestions that were made was to frame this as a debate between a one-state solution and a two-state solution. And it was a suggestion that I rejected. And I did not reject this because I'm not familiar with these debates. No, actually, quite the contrary. I'm very familiar with these debates and have been involved with them in them for some time. But it's because I'm familiar with them and the direction that they go in that I realize that they're very unproductive. Uh, and because, as Peter said, uh, quoting me, uh, you, can't have, <laughs> you can't have a productive debate about solutions if we don't agree on the problem. Solutions are like tools that are applied uh, for accomplishing very specific tasks. Uh, think about a carpenter's analogy, for example. Two carpenters can sit up at a table all day debating the merits of using a screwdriver or a hammer, but if they don't agree on whether what they're trying to do is apply a screw or a nail, it's a fruitless conversation. So I believe I see the problem we're trying to solve very differently than Peter and most liberal Zionists do in general. So how do liberal Zionists see the problem? Well, as Zionists, they see the problem first and foremost through the prism of Israeli interests, not through the prism of justice for those being denied basic rights. So for liberal Zionists, the primary problem is Israel's identity crisis. And by this, I mean, liberal Zionists look at the situation and they see a state that claims the mantra of being Jewish and democratic, but at the same time they see a reality on the ground that belies this claim, because you have millions of Palestinians uh, being ruled by a state that does not allow them any voice in in government. So for liberal Zionists, that's the challenge, Israel's identity crisis. Um, For me, I see things very differently. But let's just examine that analysis of the problem first. To conclude, as liberal Zionists do, that Israel's identity crisis is the primary problem, you have to do some very problematic things. Uh, one of them is to ignore or extremely de-emphasize the Nakba, which is of course the singular most important Uh, and and significant event in the Palestinian narrative, historical narrative and experience, and ignore or de-emphasize those directly affected by it, like the refugees. And we heard from Peter earlier about Palestinian citizens of Israel to some extent, and also Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, Uh, but uh, we heard less about refugees. And we'll get to that um, uh, later on in, in the rebuttal. Um, But, uh, because of this, liberal Zionists tend to begin their historical narrative at 1967. Adding to the problems with the liberal Zionist analysis uh, of the situation is that they have to promote this false dichotomy, and we heard it from Peter, between the state of Israel and the territory that it occupies and began occupying in 1967. Uh, This was, you know, uh, explained by Peter in a um, piece that he wrote for the New York Times uh, calling, uh, making a distinction between a democratic Israel and a non-democratic Israel. Of course, this false dichotomy leads to a series of different problems ignoring the Israeli state's history with Palestinian citizens of Israel and its lasting legacy. There's this sort of romanticism of the pre-1967 Israel that exists in the liberal Zionist narrative, but did not exist in reality, certainly not for Palestinian citizens of Israel. This false dichotomy leads again to downplaying the incompatibility of Zionism and liberalism, even inside Israel. The facts that the uh, so-called democratic Israel refers to non-Jewish citizens like myself as demographic threats, prevents them from living with their Palestinian spouses to prevent what they call demographic spillover, and passes various discriminatory laws against them are considered tolerable evils by liberal Zionists. Some liberal Zionists not only downplay this incompatibility between Zionism and liberalism inside Israel, they've accepted it, as Peter seemingly has, He told Jeffrey Goldberg in 2010, and I quote, I'm not even asking Israel to allow full equal citizenship to Arab Israelis, since that would require Israel no longer being a Jewish state. I'm actually pretty willing to compromise my liberalism for Israel's security and for its status as a Jewish state. And so I want to take this opportunity, and and Peter I'm sure can respond to this in the rebuttal, to ask whether or not Peter still stands by this statement and how he can justify such a thing with the concept of liberalism. And if he does, uh, and and, and if others do as well, these are questions uh, for him and other liberal Zionists as well. How many Arabs are too many in Israel? What percentage of people like me, Palestinian citizens of Israel, is too many for you, how many can you not handle? Is it 20%, 30%, 40%, 45%? Please draw the line and then explain to us which illiberal policies are you willing to support to prevent the Palestinian citizen of Israel population from growing to that point or beyond it? We deserve to know these answers now. Also, this false dichotomy leads to accepting BDS, albeit begrudgingly, against settlement products only while opposing BDS, targeting the Israeli state, which is actually the entity that drives settlement policy along with other laws and rights violations. This false dichotomy also leads to yet another conundrum for liberal Zionists, which is the idea that the window for a two-state solution is always closing, but it can never really close. If it's not closing, there's no urgency. But if it closes, they must answer the question that they dread. What happens next? This argumentation is of course susceptible to the boy cries wolf syndrome and quickly loses credibility. Time's been running out for a two-state solution for nearly three decades now after all. So if the liberal Zionist analysis of the problem is flawed for the reasons that I mentioned, what really is the problem? I believe that the problem is that to achieve its aims in Palestine, the Zionist movement set up a system of injustice which it had to perpetuate to maintain itself. This system of injustice has manifested itself in multiple ways over time, and the main instrument upholding this system has been the state of Israel. These manifestations of injustice, to name a few, include the depopulation of Palestine and the denial of return for refugees through law to ensure a Jewish majority at the expense of the native inhabitants of the land, the adoption of colonial era British emergency regulations as martial law to govern Palestinian citizens of Israel until 1966, regulations which a person named Menachem Begin, who if you're familiar with him is no lily white dove, uh, likened to the laws of the Nazis, Uh, adoption and then adaptation of those laws, those same laws to govern Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem since then, and of course, Uh, Another manifestation is the harsh repression of any dissent against this system through the use of overwhelming state level force against the stateless people. These manifestations exist on a direct historical trajectory which goes back to 1948 and not 1967. And they represent an evolving yet, very importantly, singular system. Maintaining this system of injustice has required the routine use of force which over the years has led to countless casualties, most of which are Palestinian, but include Israelis as well. The most recent and severe example of this was of course the war on Gaza last year, which left over 2,200 Palestinians, most of them civilians, dead. So how do we solve it? Now that I've defined what I believe is the problem, how do we solve it? I believe there's only one way. This system of injustice must be dismantled. Not part of it, but all of it. And we must work toward something more just. I think there are a number of steps we can take in this direction. One of them, hopefully, we can begin tonight by expanding the number of people who actually agree on what the real problem is that we are trying to solve. Step number two, which I hope can happen concurrently with step number three, is working together to bring the necessary pressure on the state of Israel until these changes happen. And to this end, I support full BDS, not partial BDS, Because if you want to get Israeli state behavior to change, you must target the state, not parts of the state or little hilltop settlements, but the state itself until decision makers in Israel come to a different conclusion than the conclusion that they have today, which is the status quo is sustainable. And the third step is engaging in serious conversation about what the practical implementation of a new system would look like. So many of the questions that Peter threw out to scare us all away from an alternative situation can be answered in a serious and rigorous way. This is not a call for the destruction of Israel any more than the anti-apartheid movement was calling for the destruction of South Africa. But I realize some pro-Israel-minded listeners will not accept this, and so I ask them, and I will end with this, what sort of state faces an existential threat by merely respecting the human rights of those whose lives it governs? How did it come to find itself in such a predicament? And is that really the kind of state that you want to support?
1: Thank you very much, Yusuf. Peter will now have five minutes for a rebuttal.
2: So I felt like Yusuf was responding to a mythical liberal Zionist that he had created in his mind. There may be such people, but I didn't feel he was responding to me. Um, I didn't say that Israeli interests were the, were the primary prism through which I, was, I, I saw the issue. That's not, in fact, the way I discussed the issue. I, uh, um, and um, I didn't ignore 1948. To the contrary, I started with the 1930s and 40s and the reason for the idea of partition. Um, uh, I do, I think that the, 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 the Nakba is an enormous, enormous historical tragedy, momentous historical tragedy that hangs over this conflict. Obviously, that's true. The question is, what does one do about it now? I think, uh, and what Steph, and I might want to do about it may not be the same. What I would want to do about it is different than the vast majority of Israeli Jews. I believe that Israel needs to take public responsibility for the, for the, for the, the trauma that it created, that it played a very, very large role in creating. I believe that there should be a Nakba museum inside Israel, and I believe in some right of return. What we know from the Omer abbas negotiations where that Omet was talking about maybe 10 or 20,000, Abbas was talking about maybe 150,000, I would be happy to split that number. I'd be willing to go closer <laughs> to Abbas's number. I'd be willing to go to 100,000. The point, what, I'm not, what I do not think Israel has the right to do, nor would I ask a Palestinian state to do, would be to abandon control of its immigration policy entirely. On this Jeff Goldberg quote, which I had this feeling was going to come up, I, uh, I said... I uh, I said in my initial remarks, and I've said many times before, what exactly I meant by that. I support... And I support Israel being able to have a preferential immigration policy for Jews. I don't support the current immigration policy that Israel has in all its ways, but I do believe that if a Palestinian state has the right to a preferential immigration policy for Palestinians, and many, many, many countries around the world, literally dozens of countries around the world, have preferential immigration policies for members of a particular ethnic group, then in a post-Holocaust world, a Jewish state has that right as well. And I believe that Israel has the right to some public symbols. Jewish holidays, for instance. Um, uh, uh, I do believe that that privileges Jews. It is a far cry from many of the kinds of discrimination that exist in Israel today, but I am honest enough to say that simply the existence of the current Israeli flag or the current Israeli national anthem privileges Jews over Palestinians. As indeed, I think it's pretty clear from, from the Palestinian Constitution and other documents that Palestinian public symbols will privilege Arabs and Muslims over other members of a future Palestinian state. Um, the, uh, How much time do we have left? Um, the, um, I also did not romanticize pre-1967 Israel To to the contrary, I'm fully aware that Palestinian citizens lived under military law until 1966. Uh, To me, but I also reject the idea that there is no meaningful distinction between Israel inside the Green Line, where Palestinians have the right to vote, serve in the Knesset, serve on the the Supreme Court, live under the same legal system, uh, and Palestinians in the West Bank who are not citizens of the country in which they live, do not have the right to vote for the government that controls their lives. And live under a different legal system. Are dramatic changes needed inside the green line? Absolutely, they are. Absolutely, they are. I think it's very, very important that Israel become that we get to the point where, where Palestinian political parties in Israel are serving as important members of Israeli political coalitions. And I think I think that. Uh, but the but part. But I believe that it will be much easier to get to those kind of changes inside the green line if. The festering wound, the bloody festering wound of Israel's control of the West Bank and Gaza is ended. Because it is Israeli control of the West Bank and Gaza which, make, which poisons relationships between Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens inside the Green Line and makes it harder to make the changes inside the Green Line that Israel, I think, desperately needs to make. You know, Youssef said that um, he doesn't like to talk about one states and two states. That's perfectly his right. But it doesn't seem to me illogical to talk, when one's talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about what outcome one wants. One can talk about political principles. Though that's very important. But in the real world, political principles have to be implemented. And part of what I was talking about is the very, very difficult conditions under which political principles would need to be implemented, which is why I believe that the two-state solution, as flawed as it is, is better than the other main alternative. I don't think it's good enough. For, to, to simply say, we can have a serious conversation about that. That's the conversation I think we need to be having right now.
1: Great. Thanks, Peter. yusuf you have five minutes. <coughs>
3: um, while, while I appreciate the notion uh, uh, that a Ekbe Museum could one day be built in Israel, Uh, it it does very little for the refugee who can never come back to his land to see it. Uh, And uh, frankly, just because there is a museum built, it does nothing to rectify in any way the experience of refugees who have been for decades now uh, removed and and prevented from returning to their land. Uh, Nor does it do anything to um, uh, fix the... Reality of squalor that they've been living in because of that experience. Uh, And uh, it's not an immigration policy. It is a refugee policy. It is an anti-refugee policy and specifically an anti-Palestinian refugee policy. This isn't about immigration. The laws that were set up to deny the return of Palestinians from uh, returning into Israel were set up right after the inception of the state. Uh, and designed very specifically to prevent specific people from returning. It is a discriminatory refugee policy, that's what it is, because there are refugees that are permitted to enter into Israel as long as they're Jewish. But Palestinian refugees are not not allowed to return, even if they have legitimate uh, residency claims in the land, uh, were made refugees after even the creation of the state. So, um, you know, I, don't, I absolutely do not see this as an immigration policy in any way, nor do I think the comparison, making the comparison of, um, you know, Israel's refusal to allow refugees to return to immigration policies of other states, I don't think that that's valid at all. Um, on the one-state, two-state question, it's, it's not that I don't want to talk about one-state, two-state. We can talk about that. But I, the reason I don't want to talk about one solution versus another solution is first we have to agree on what the problem is, as I said. And we have very different views about what the problem is. Uh, and, uh, you know, you had stated in your uh, opening comments, and this is really an, an example of how different we see this issue when it comes to understanding the problem. You know, polls of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, there's a number of problems with these polls. Um, primarily that they only capture public opinion in the West Bank and Gaza, people who are predisposed to favoring a particular solution because it happens to benefit them more than it does refugees who are living in refugee camps whose opinions never get reflected in any of these polls. And even within those polls, if you dig through them and look at the nuances, what you see are answers that are not compatible with a two-state solution in the sense that 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 Peter wants them to be. Because if you ask, and you can look at Shikaki's polls and these numbers are reaffirmed poll after poll. If you ask Palestinians, what are your primary national objectives? These are Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Number one is an end to the occupation. Number two is the right to return. If you ask them, other than your primary, what is your number one? It is the right to return. And these are Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, not even taking into consideration that these are not refugees or primarily not refugees. So the 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 notion that you know public opinion polling in some way reflects what Palestinian sentiment is when there are all of these problems with it, I think is 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 um, you know a, re- a really unfair um, uh, statement to make. Um, you know, I, I, and, and I'll just I know we're running out of time here in in the rebuttal part. But I would just say, you know, uh, what is it going to look like? Well. Uh, One of the reasons why Peter is is able to say, look, the two-state solution is better than one state uh, because of all of these different uh, boogeyman scenarios about one state is precisely because Peter can make the statement, we know what it would look like in terms of a two-state solution. I'm not really even sure that's true because I don't think we really know what it would look like, but we have a better idea of what the parameters of two-state are than exactly how one state would work. But the reason that that's the case is because so much of the conversation has been dominated by the two-state discourse that there hasn't been the necessary work done on thinking about how the practical implementation of things like repatriation could work, how constitutionalism can be applied to this system, how you can have uh, you know a, a fair dividing of land and resources between people that includes also incoming refugees. All of these things, I agree with you, are issues that need to be worked out and there's no crystal clear answers to them, but that's because the work simply has not been done in the kind of way at the policy level that work on the two-state solution has. And, you know, it's it's very easy to say, look, we shouldn't even bother doing that work because we don't know what it's going to look like. But then that just defeats the purpose. So uh, that's why I I said that the, the, the steps that we have to take include, as well as pressure on Israel now, also include having a rigorous conversation about what implementation would actually look like in practical terms. I guess I'll stop there.
1: Great. Thanks. So, Peter, I wonder if you want to just respond to Yusuf's point about the refugee problem as opposed to it being simply an immigration policy problem.
2: Sure. Well, it's certainly not just an immigration policy problem, but the, but the, the truth is that especially in conditions of partition, there are, refugees around the world do not have the right to return simply at will. You, people in uh, Pakistan do not, who were born in India do not have the right to return at will, let alone their children, grandchildren. My grandmother, who was born in Alexandria, Egypt, does not have the right to return to, to Egypt. Uh, if, you, if you look at, if you look at the, the partition plan that Kofi Annan came up for, with for Cyprus, which it, when, it, when it dealt with the, with the return of refugees, there were severe limits on the ability of refugees to return across the, the line that would that have been drawn in Cyprus. Very, very few refugees have returned in the former Yugoslavia. Again, I I think that the 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 I am not against uh, I am not against some some especially original refugees returning. But the truth is that especially under conditions of partition, the idea that there is a that, that a country cedes completely its its right to to um, to control its borders is not in fact the normative practice, I think, around the world. The the I guess the the, the question that I had was um, I don't think the problem with um, uh with the one state solution is that not enough work has been done on it. It's true that not as much work has been done on it, but in fact, there has been some, some work that's been done in recent years. That wasn't my argument. My argument was that it, it, that it breaks on the fundamental problem that this, that, that this is not only a struggle of people desiring individual rights, it is a struggle of two nationalisms. And those two nationalisms both desire a state. And that a binational state is something that I think under these conditions, would be impossible to make function in a way that would serve people well.
3: well somebody once said, if you will it, it is no dream. <laughs> um, so I think, I think the, the, the first step uh, is uh, saying, well, is, is, is this something that we would like to see? You want to describe it as utopian, that's fine. I actually think both a one-state outcome and a two-state outcome are dystopian, highly problematic. Neither of them are going to be great for everybody down the line because, in reality, colonialism screwed both people in this land, one, one people certainly more than the other. Um, but there's no way this is working out well for everybody in the near term. I do think that we can get a closer approximation to justice in a one-state outcome than in a two-state outcome, especially if we're talking about a two-state outcome that is conventionally discussed where there is limited or no right of return and that the Palestinian state that ends up you know, uh, being created is some truncated collection of bantustans. Um, so you know, there has not been enough work done. We, we need to have that conversation. We need to do that work. It needs to be done in a serious way. And it can't just continue to be you know uh, ignored as this pie in the sky thing. I, I agree with you that, that, that it, it's, it's not an ideal outcome. Uh, I depart from that point. None of this is going to be ideal. Uh, and I, for, for every problem there is with a one-state outcome, you could name as many and more with a two-state outcome, certainly more for the Palestinians than for Israelis. Uh, and, you know, which is one of the reasons why the two-state outcome is so popular with Zionists, because really it's the Palestinians that get screwed out of that situation more than the, uh, the Israelis.
1: And Yusuf, I'd just be curious to know, how would you respond to Peter's point about the refugees coming in not being normative around the world?
3: Well, look, I think the, the right of return is very clear in international law. This is not, you know, there's not too much of an issue for debate here. In fact, if you look at the UN Declaration of Human Rights, um, it, it, it's very clear uh, in terms of the rights of people to leave and enter uh, a country. I think what's, what is very interesting about that is if you look at the, the actual article which it is mentioned in there are two clauses in that article. Uh, one that says uh, people have the right to move freely within any given state. And the second is people have a right to enter and exit their country. And the distinction between state and country is very important and it exists within the same article of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, precisely because there are times when refugees leave their country and that country then becomes under the control of a different state. But that doesn't negate their right to return to that country just because a particular state decides to declare itself over that space. If today, where we have a massive refugee crisis happening in Syria, if if Bashar al-Assad decided to declare Syria an Alawite state and not permit any Sunni refugees from returning, would anyone stand for that as acceptable? Even if he declared this is the one and only Alawite state in the world, surrounded by a sea of Sunni states? I mean this is just it's just not how it works. Refugees have a right to return to the country where they're from, regardless to what flag is flying over it
2: um i i I, I think it's I wanted to say that it's it's you know it's Youssef mentioned that only uh, when people look at these opinion, about these opinion polls and what people's preferences are, they only look at Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. That's specifically why I talked about the Zogby poll, which looks at Israel's Palestinian citizens. Is Palestinian citizens of Israel even more in favor of the two-state solution, in fact, than our Palestinians in the West Bank? Uh, and there's a significant amount of support of, from Palestinians in refugee camps as well. Um, the, uh, we are talking about, we're not, it's, Yusuf also didn't mention that he's not just talking about original Palestinian refugees, he's presumably talking about their children and grandchildren at this point, right? Um, I don't, as I said, there is no expectation uh, in, in, in international discourse that I am aware whatsoever that the, uh, that the millions and millions of Jews who, like my family, come from the Arab world and our children and grandchildren, great greatchildren have the right to return to those countries. Um, it's simply that's, it's not even a, it's not even really publicly discussed now again i'm not saying that that doesn't that, that means that israel should should shut down the conversation on refugees i don't believe that i think the conversation on refugees is very important uh, but i don't believe that that i don't believe that israel has to say i do i do believe that that the bulk of the palestinian refugees as in the clinton parameters should be given a menu of different options some will return to Israel proper, original refugees. But I don't think Israel has the, has the responsibility to say that they cede, all, they, they, see all, they cede any role in determining who is going to enter Israel's borders.
1: And uh, Peter, I'd be curious to hear how you'd respond to Yusuf's point about this distinction between Israel proper and outside the green line. Um, his point about uh, BDS needing to target the state itself if that's where these policies are initially coming from?
2: I mean, it's certainly true that the Israeli state created the Israeli settlement enterprise. No question about that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there is no important distinction between Israel inside the Green Line and in, uh, in Israel in the West Bank and Gaza. There is a very, very important distinction, a very fundamental distinction. And the problem I have with not recognizing that distinction is first of all that I think it's unfair, and second of all that I think it essentially gestures towards the the, the one-state outcome that I oppose. If you want to, if you if you if you want a two-state solution, then you should be targeting the area that you fi- that you consider no longer has a right to be part of Israel. Uh, there are a number there there are a whole method of different forms of pressure that I think are possible while still affirming, affirming the two-state solution. I happen to think that the most Potentially the most important one right now may be what happens at the UN in the fall with the idea of not simply putting the UN stamp behind a two-state solution, but in fact actually trying to create a mechanism with the backing of the UN Security Council for how that process would play itself out. So you could not have endless negotiations that got nowhere, which is I think what the Israeli government has wanted in the past. But in fact, there would be a specific timeline towards moving towards the kind of parameters that that, uh, that were discussed by Olmert and Abbas, and that have been laid out in things like the Geneva Accord. So I think there are effective methods of pressure that do not erase the distinction between Israel inside and outside the Green Line, and that do not, and that are in support of the two-state solution, which I think the BDS movement per se is not. There are certain BDS actions that are adopted by some churches, for instance, that may affirm Israel's right to exist. But the BDS call as, in, as a whole does not.
1: Yusuf, what would you say to that point about uh, it being a matter of erasing the distinction between Israel proper and not?
3: I think Israel erased the distinction. You know, you, you could drive from Tel Aviv all the way to the most remote settlements in the West Bank. You won't see a green line. You won't see a, uh, a demarcation there. You won't be, as an Israeli, you won't be confronted at any checkpoints. There is no distinction for Israelis. This is part of the problem. But I think there's a different issue here. Um, the, the, The question when it comes to pressure is, what is it that you are trying to change? I mean, let's set aside for, for uh, a second the reasons why I support BDS is not simply because of the settlements and the occupation, but also because of the other pillars of the BDS call, which include equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel and a right of return for Palestinian refugees. <coughs> but let's say you think that the problem is the settlements, that that's, that's what has to change. If you think that's the case, what is it that needs to change? Is it the the settlers need to pack up and go home? Are they the people who need to make that decision? Or is the government of Israel and the people who make the decisions at the state level the body that's supposed to change their decision-making about financing and supporting these settlements economically, politically, and militarily? That's the entity that has to change. When we talk about changing Iranian state behavior in relation to its nuclear program, nobody is arguing, listen, we should only place sanctions on those little towns where the nuclear reactors happen to be, or only on the schools that happen to produce the scientists for those nuclear reactors. We are saying we want to change policy at the state level. So that means putting pressure on actors at the state level to recalculate. And when, when we're talking about placing pressure on any state in any, in any situation, that's what has to happen. That's how you change state behavior by making them recalculate their incentives. If people stop buying um, you know, uh, Dead Sea mineral <coughs> mud, and I think you all should, any products that come from the settlements, but that alone is not enough to change Israeli state behavior. It helps, it helps put weight on that side of the scale, but if you're going to change the decision calculus in the state, there has to be a hell of a lot more pressure than just that. And there's nothing wrong with that, even if you just believe that the settlements are the problem. Because the settlements don't sprout up on the hilltops by themselves. And if you look at how the settlements happen and how the settlements grow, it happens because they're given preferential treatment by the government. It's certainly not a process of of natural growth in any way. It It is a very distinct and calculated policy. So the kind of pressure that needs to be brought forth on the Israeli government is the kind that makes them recalculate. And the reality is just boycotting settlement products or sanctions just on the settlements is not enough to do that. Look, Peter said earlier, um, you know, it, 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 they evacuated the settlers in, in Gaza in a week. Um, you know, I, I, I think it really minimizes uh, the extent of entrenchment of the settlement enterprise in the West Bank. There are, at minimum, in any conventional two-state conversation about uh, withdrawal, 100,000 settlers that need to be withdrawn with an Israeli military that is increasingly made up of religious officers that would have to carry out these orders. And if you look at the amount of money that was actually spent by the state, when you look at compensation as well, for the few thousand settlers that were removed by Gaza, in Gaza, and then extrapolate that over 100,000, we're talking about 10% of Israeli GDP. That's just the, the economic cost to Israel for withdrawal. Just the economic cost. Not even mentioning the political cost that's involved with removing all of the constituents of Naftali Bennett's party and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party that rely on the support of this 9% of the Israeli population to ensure that they get reelected time and time again. So there are serious political and economic disincentives to withdraw on one side of the scale. Boycotting Dead Sea Mud on the other side of the scale is not going to tip it. There needs to be serious. Pressure. And while I appreciate all the efforts to boycott settlement products, and they should continue, they need to be multiplied ten and a hundredfold for there to be change.
2: I, uh, uh, I think the statistic about 10% of GDP is actually not correct. If you look at Israeli GDP now, I looked at that, I, I saw you had mentioned that comment before, and I think it, Israeli GDP, I think, is, is about 290 billion, so I think it would be more like 6 or 7%. But you have to, you have to balance, if you're talking about the difference, you have, to all, you have to balance the cost to Israel of withdrawing these settlements versus the cost of continuing to subsidize them, which is the use of acknowledge, is massive. Israel is spending, nobody knows exactly what the number is, but Israel is, funded, is subsidizing the settlements to, to a dramatic, to a huge number, billions and billions of dollars. That money is not being spent inside the green line. So I actually don't buy the idea that it's economically costly for Israel to do that. If you're saying that it's politically difficult and politically costly for Israel to withdraw 100,000 settlers, if you think there's not the political will to do that, or it it would take a great deal to to develop, to have enough political pressure on Israel to do that, then how do you think you're going to have the political will to dismantle the Israeli state altogether? That, would, that, is a, that is a much, much, much greater hurdle than, than, than withdrawing 100,000 settlers from the West Bank. And yet people, both on the one hand, say that we need to do that, and on the other hand say that, we, that Israel can't even summon the political will to, to remove 100,000 settlers. I, I just wanted to say something more on the, on the, on the BDS part, on the BDS point. Um, um, uh, the, the first is that I, the, the problem with saying that you're going to support BDS because you want to incentivize Israel to allow the creation of a Palestinian state, is that the the BDS movement's most prominent voices do not support a two-state solution. And so you're making yourself complicit with a movement that is in large measure hostile to the two-state solution and hostile to the existence of any kind of Jewish state within any borders. And one has to take responsibility for whom one is aligned oneself with. The other point is, I'm not in general a fan of double standards arguments. And I have made that point at length and in in Jewish audiences where it's not very popular. But I do have to say, there is a certain level of double standard at which things become absurd. If you're talking about boycotting the, the, the uh, boycotting Israeli behavior in the West Bank and Gaza because of the fundamental repression that exists there, but not boycotting anything else in the in the Arab or Middle East, I, I'm, I'm with you. But if you're saying you're going to boycott Israel inside the Green Line, where Palestinians have the right to vote, are represented in the Knesset, live under the same legal system, are represented in the Supreme Court, but you don't, in fact, but you, have, but you have no problem with a whole series of states where everyone has far fewer rights than that. That seems to be genuinely problematic.
1: I would just like uh, to give Yusuf a quick yeah, chance to w- just say some a last thought if you've got one. Yeah,
3: I mean we, we hear this all the time about, oh, Palestinian citizens are in the Knesset and Palestinian judges and all that. Well, I'll have you know that during the time of Jim Crow, there were African-American members of Congress and there were also African-American judges. This, this, the, no, Certainly not much, and we could talk about the percentages in, in, in Israel as well, but the reality is you can point to anecdotes within Israel, but that doesn't mean there's no systematic discrimination. That's number one. Uh, number two, look, the reality is there is a double standard, but that double standard also exists for Israel. In in many situations around the world where you have human rights abuses, you have an international state system which is actually attempting to do something about that to a far greater extent than they're attempting to do something when it comes to Israel. In many other cases, when you have human rights abusers, you have sanctions slapped on those regimes. You don't have that in Israel. The reason BDS is stepping up to the plate as a civil society movement to play this role is precisely because the the state system has failed to do that. Instead, the state system at large, led of course by the United States through its influence over the United Nations, has only acted as a cover for Israel's actions in the occupied territories, has prevented any further action by the international community at the United Nations Security Council, and continues to subsidize this to the single largest foreign military financing expense in in, in the United States' budget. So if we want to talk about double standards, let's talk about those double standards. BDS exists to fill a void that the state system has created because of its inability to do what needs to be done when it comes to pressuring Israel.
2: Well, can I just kind of respond to that? I, 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 think, okay, okay. Um, I, I mean, there are certainly countries where there, where there is some international effort at regressing human rights abuses. But there is absolutely no such effort going on in Saudi Arabia or in any of the Gulf states, for instance. To the idea that suggests that only, the only, is, and only in Israel is the state system turning a blind eye. In many, many countries, with I would argue even more profound human rights abuses, certainly more profound human rights abuses than Israel inside the green line. There is in fact no pressure whatsoever at all, neither from the United States nor from the international community. So while you, what you're saying may be true in, the, in in certain cases, it's not true in many, many other cases.
3: Peter, if you want to start. A boycott Saudi Arabia uh, movement. You're welcome to. I'm happy. I'm I'm happy to sign up as your first member. I have plenty of problems with the Saudi regime, but the Saudi regime isn't the one that doesn't permit me to live with my wife in the town where I was born. Okay, sure. it's not the one that doesn't permit my family to return to the. To, this is a personal experience for many Palestinians. It's not just about what's right and what's wrong it's about how do we gain justice for ourselves and dignity for ourselves so uh... you know let start that movement. I'm happy to, I'm happy to join you. Right, right. Plenty of us, by the way, plenty of people within the BDS movement are very, very critical of these regimes and are active in a variety of different efforts for human rights across an, a number of different uh, borders. So it's, it's, it's not as, as, uh, as you would uh, describe it.
2: Right. But if you have the right to see this through your, the prism of your experience, Jews also have the right to see it through the prism of their experience, which is the experience, which is, and we, if you're talking about boycotting inside the green line, but there is no now big big, I've never seen a big protest about what's happening in Saudi Arabia, but, and Jews have the right to be concerned about that, seeing it through their prism of their experience of, of victimization uh, by a world that has been very, very historically often not interested in Jewish welfare and, in fact, treated Jews by a different, by a different standard. You see it through your experience. Jews will also nationally it see it through the, through the prism of our own experience.
1: Okay. Thank you. All right, thanks to you, to you all for coming, to New America for having us, and to our panelists, Yusuf Munair and Peter Beinart. Stick around for a couple of minutes, have a drink and chat with us. We'd be happy to talk to you. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us, at newamerica.org